Welcome to APAC Weekly, a showcase of conversations on the APAC network with Asia-Pacific's brightest minds. I'm Oriel Morrison. Coming up, the economic power play for space. How Australia could drastically cut Asia-Pacific's carbon emissions. And prepare for the arrival of virtual influences. But first, I spoke with APAC Network's correspondent in Vietnam about the country's emergence as a high-end manufacturing hub, with Apple, the world's biggest tech company, assembling more and more of its premium products in the country. That marks a new victory for Vietnam when the US technology giant is looking to diversify its supply and production chains. Uh, so in the context of the shifting of the global supply chain, and the allocation of risks from investors who do not want to focus on a single market. Mm. Now, now, the World Bank Kiep, says Vietnam will benefit from the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP. How much is it likely to change the country's outlook? Vietnam, you know, Vietnam, we are the country of signing FTAs. We have signed 16 FTAs, including important partners such as the UK, Canada, EU, Korea, Japan. Russia, China, and Australia. And we're also continuing to negotiate two FTAs with Israel and the EFTA bloc. So in particular, Vietnam has completed a number of strategic new generation agreements, as we have mentioned, and it will bring many opportunities to develop the market for Vietnam. But yeah, you know, in another aspect, the new these new FTAs they also set strict regulations and standards for the participating parties in order to improve product quality and standards, as well as the core values of sustainable development. So full enforcement of these regulations will help Vietnam's economy operate efficiently and fully meet the requirements of the global supply chain. However, the provisions of the FTAs also poses many new challenges for Vietnam in perfecting legal policies in different fields, especially labor, environmental protection, and intellectual property. That's the, the key issue in Vietnam these days. Mm -hmm. So the goals of Vietnam's economy is to consider the requirements of the FTAs as the foundation for an important development strategy in the coming period to turn Vietnam into an international production and trade center, an important link in the global supply chain. So that's the strategy of our country for now and for the future to come. Now, Apple clearly has big plans for Vietnam, certainly not the only technology company that's moving manufacturing into the country. But what does it mean economically to Vietnam with the number of Apple suppliers in the country increasing substantially? Um, so in the context of the current global geopolitical situation, the Vietnam's maintenance of political stability, economic development, as well as good and flexible COVID-19 control methods. It will create favorable conditions and become an attractive destination for potential FDI investors. It will require 2% of the country's landmass, but a study undertaken by researchers at the Australian National University has shown that Australia alone could cut Asia-Pacific's carbon emissions by more than 8%. Yes, that's right. Australia is currently a very large exporter of fossil fuels. We're the largest exporter of coal, the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. 
if we were to replace those fossil fuel exports with clean energy exports, and also if we were to use some of our minerals that we export, use them locally, but do our processing using renewable energy, we could help reduce Asia-Pacific emissions quite substantially. Our calculations indicate that about 8.6% of the region's emissions could be abated or reduced under that scenario. Even if we could only do part of that, that would be a big contribution. So I'm going to be a little bit cynical here, um, Paul, but I wanted to ask you how likely it is. I mean, you're talking about replacing the exports of commodities like you, you mentioned some of them there, but like thermal coal, another one is LNG, another one is iron ore. And what is the likelihood of, of Australia not exporting iron ore? Well, short run likelihood of this change is very low. Mm -hmm. But over time, there are huge opportunities here. And that's really the key point. Mm. Coal and natural gas exports as well, these will not be around in the long run. Uh, in particular, coal, it's a highly polluting fuel in particular, thermal coal. So the prospects are not good for those coal and also LNG exports when we're looking at 10, 20, 30 years down the track. When it comes to production of metals, there are opportunities in Australia, green aluminium and green steel. The green steel, in the, the steel industry is a huge one mm. and it would be difficult for Australia to really carve out a large share of it. But even if we could start to get moving, with some projects to demonstrate what's possible. And here, one other thing to keep in mind is it's not only Australian capital that would be doing this. Mm. Really, we could be having large inflows of capital to be investing in green steel production in Australia. The key point is we have this strong comparative advantage. We have the iron ore. We're a good country for capital investments. And also, we have this great endowment of renewable energy, solar, wind and great land endowments as well. What sort of response are you getting from the public, whether it's the, you know, the private sector or the public sector? What sort of response are you getting when you put your research in front of them? Well, there's a lot of interest in this topic in Australia at the moment. So in the private sector, there are various proposals to be exporting things such as green ammonia, green electricity, uh, and also to be producing green steel in Australia as well. The newly elected government in Australia is also very interested in this topic and it's one of their priorities to develop Australia as a renewable energy superpower, which really is this idea of let's embrace these great technologies and our great endowments in solar, wind and land mm -hmm. and also potentials for things such as pumped hydro energy storage. So really this is a topic whose time has come. Mm. Uh, it's not a goal that can be achieved overnight. And it's a process, it's a road to be driven down. We're going down that road. There's the private sector that's interested, the government's interested. Not all projects will go ahead, but the long run opportunity is very much there. So you talked about renewables, specifically wind and solar, and then you talked about land. And of course, in Australia, we have an abundance of land that's currently not being used. How much of this land would need to be used for renewable to achieve that 8.6%? Well, in our paper, we present some calculations that suggest that in an extreme scenario, about 2% of Australia's land could be used for solar and wind farms. And that would be for producing the green electricity for export, green hydrogen for export, and also the renewable energy needs to be producing green aluminium 
and green steel to meet that 8.6% reduction in regional emissions that you mentioned. 2% of Australia's landmass is a big area and environmental protections will be an important part of the story. We need to get that right. But also think of the benefits. We wouldn't need to be opening new coal mines. We could forget about opening new uh, gas fields as well if we were to go down this path. So really it's a choice that we have in front of us. Do we want to be using more of our land for solar and wind? Uh, and we need to get it right in terms of where these projects are located. We want them to be in the best possible places that have uh, the lowest ecological impacts as well. Where do you see the capital coming from, Paul? You know, this is obviously a big idea. It is financially expensive. A lot of capital would be needed in order for this transition to take place. Is this a public-private partnership type model that you'd like to see in order to make this happen? Mostly from the private sector. Uh, there's a role for government investment in things like research and development and in infrastructure, for example, transmission lines domestically in Australia. But for these big projects themselves, what's really needed is large-scale private investment. And that capital would be from both domestic and also foreign sources. Australia is a capital importing country mm. and really we need that to continue. We have these great opportunities here. This is a capital intensive road to be going down. So really we would need to be having quite large scale capital inflows from the United States, from around the world and in particular from the Asia Pacific, given that those uh, countries with large uh, markets, lots of capital available in mm. countries such as China. And our exports will be going to those markets. So very important to be having investment coming from those markets too. You know, this piece of, of work that you've done on this um, is the first of its kind. You know, it, it's the first really to quantify this, to quantify, you know, when we're looking at the energy, the land, the water requirements of transferring to this uh, I suppose, uh, net zero export model. Was there anything that came out along the journey that surprised you? Were there any results that surprised you? One interesting result is related to water use. Producing hydrogen, green hydrogen, does require water. So you produce electricity, you get water, and then you split the water to produce the hydrogen. Where does the water come from? Because, of course, Australia is a dry country. Our answer to that was, let's desalinate water. And the interesting thing was that the energy required to do that desalination is actually relatively small compared to the energy required to produce the hydrogen itself. So that was one of the interesting aspects. So what do you see as the biggest stumbling block? I mean, obviously, Australia has the opportunity here to lead the way. You know, can we step into that leadership position? For products such as green hydrogen, Exports from Australia face many challenges. There are lots of potential competitors. Uh, direct electricity being produced in countries such as Japan from sources such as offshore wind or green hydrogen produced in the Middle East, for example. So that's a very competitive market. It makes sense for Australia to focus on some of the best opportunities. Green ammonia seems like one of them. Ammonia is used for fertilisers and other things. And really, if we could get into that market and produce ammonia in a low emissions way based on hydrogen production using solar and wind energy, that would really make a first great step in reducing emissions. 
Namrata Goswami is an internationally renowned scholar who wrote the book Scramble for the Skies, the great power competition to control the resources of outer space. It outlines where the new battles above Earth are being fought. The book focuses on the U.S. Uh, as a key actor in space and space power projection and actually the number one actor followed by China, which is uh, very close in terms of competing with U.S. for global leadership, and then India as an important player in Asia as well. When you look at this particular time in history, it's being characterized or defined as the second space race. What does that actually mean? Sure. So uh, what is important today and very critical to understand is that the space race that we are seeing today is very different from the space race that we saw during the Cold War, which was a lot about prestige and technology demonstration. And what is even more uh, interesting is that that space race was dominated by the U.S. and the erstwhile USSR. Today's space race is actually a lot about who is going to be able to dominate the economic benefits of space. So in the book, what we look at is this concept of space resources, where countries like the US, China, India, and middle powers like the United Arab Emirates and Luxembourg are starting to view space from a utilization and economic power perspective. So the second space race is a lot about which country will be able to, for example, get to the lunar surface for the first time and will be able to uh, utilize the resources on the moon, for example, like water ice, which we can use for rocket fuel or for uh, sustainability of human presence, and helium-3, which is also a very important uh, mineral found on the moon, which can be used for rocket fuel, uh, for example, in technologies like nuclear fusion. So to end, I would say that the second space race is different because, first of all, it's about economic advantage which country is going to dominate from that economic perspective. It's not so much about prestige and technology or ideological demonstration. And finally, I'll end by saying that the second space race includes a lot more actors, not just the two actors we saw during the Cold War. From the geopolitical angle, is there a concern within this race of all of these countries that are now um, part of this second space race? Yes, there is a concern because, first of all, if you look at some of the articulations coming out of uh, China, for example, from some of China's lead uh, space policy makers and thinkers and scientists, they argue that they view space and, for example, uh, a concept like the moon as a territory. And given China's strategic culture and historical uh, proclivity uh, based on its uh, internal domestic and historical analysis, you can see that China tends to be aggressive when it comes to resources, say, on the South China Sea or Tibet, right? So if China argues that space is similar to that kind of territorial imagination, then there is reason for concern that a similar strategic culture might play out. The second concern, which I actually flag in the book, is that because the idea of utilization of space resources from an economic perspective is so new, the uh, treaties that were drafted and signed during the Cold War, for example, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, does not actually deal with concepts like how do you share these resources? So once you get there, 
given that space is a province of mankind, as the language of the Outer Space Treaty tells us, it does not go on to say that, okay, if China or US or India finds water ice on the lunar surface or mines the lunar surface for helium-3, or say these countries mine an asteroid for rare earth uh, metal like platinum, how do you go about sharing it is not really indicated in any of the treaties that exist today on space. And given that, the concern is that what happens if one particular country uh, claims a real estate, say, on the moon, as you pointed out, and then refuses to share that particular real estate with another country? Who will decide and who will basically uh, be the policeman there, right? It's not clear uh, as of today. What is your expectation with all of your, obviously, your, your insight and your, your knowledge of the situation? What, what is your expectation or, or your view on how this will pan out? I think my expectation is that there will be pressure from uh, countries, for example, like Luxembourg, the United Arab Emirates. And actually, what is uh, interesting that in the last two years, we have seen that the United Kingdom has actually pushed for a United Nations resolution, for example, 7536, which actually calls for responsible behavior in space and also for building better normative frameworks to deal with the future that is to come. And by by what is important is that the United Kingdom calls for consensus building, right? So my expectation is that the Outer Space Treaty as it stands today will hold, but there will be the development of uh, further frameworks for the utilization of space resources and space development given that the future we are talking about includes uh, trillions of dollars and several nations that will develop that capacity. What, what does the ultimate prize look like for the victors of the space? Okay, so I think the ultimate prize is that space is a very critical part of a nation's grand strategy and comprehensive national power. And today, if you think about it, space is a critical infrastructure. And I think the ultimate prize is in the assessment from our book and my overall uh, expertise what I've come to the conclusion is that the country that actually articulates the most far-reaching economic vision invests resources to build capacity and then uh, identifies space as a critical infrastructure, and China has already done that in 2020. The ultimate price is that you will then have the resources that will help you to establish the framework and international influence as a great power and actually a lead actor by, say, 2049, and the only country that has articulated such an ambition today is uh, China. The U.S. has, of course, woken up to this particular uh, critical infrastructure concept. There are policies from the former Trump administration and the Biden administration to include supporting the Artemis Accord. The world of deep fakes on the internet is nothing new, but be prepared for the next wave. As Dr. Tama Lever explains, virtual influencers will soon replace their human counterparts. So a virtual influencer is basically someone who goes through the process and, and looks like and feels like an influencer. So someone who connects via social media and has a meaningful following who uh, value that interaction, but does not exist as a, a physical entity. So they're not a real person. They're usually either an animated character or an amalgam of, of different virtual technologies who interacts with an audience like a, a, a full-blown influencer would and has a, a following that value and treasure their insight and perspective. And this is something that we've seen really spike in, in recent months. 
Absolutely. So we've, we've, I mean, influence, virtual influencers have been uh, emerging over the last few years. I think Lil Michaela is probably the most famous example, and I think she's got a, a following of upward of 3 million now. But what we are seeing is the technology is maturing and the um, people are realising that having an influencer that they completely control in every uh, aspect is is in many ways more desirable as many celebrities go off the rails in different ways. We've, we've got, you know, much more tame when they're virtual influencers. I guess it's a lot easier to manage, isn't it? Well, that's right. And they can work for anyone at any time uh, as long as you've got the, the right software. Facebook, now Meta, has clearly banked its future in the metaverse. Juggernauts like that don't usually get bets like this wrong. Is the metaverse the future, in your opinion, of consumer digital commerce? Look, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg is trying really hard to convince the world that it is. I think the idea of a, a fully realised 3D immersive environment like a metaverse is something that a lot of companies are working towards. And obviously, Facebook, having rebranded as Meta, are betting the farm on this. So we'll definitely have a metaverse and we'll definitely have experiences in it. Whether it lives up to, to people's imagining, I think is probably going to be the, the real challenge because we've seen metaverses in, in films like Ready Player One, which are amazing, realistic, interactive, immersive environments. And I think that what we've got so far, which is sort of people in headsets who look like they've just walked out of um, sort of a 1980s game, there's definitely some terrain to improve on before we get to something that everyone wants to use. But at the same time, we do see lots of companies. It's not just social media companies. We also see, for example, special effects companies being bought up by gaming companies who are probably walking in the same direction and are going to arrive at a, a slightly different looking metaverse, but actually it might be a richer and more immersive experience if you're using gaming and cinematic technologies rather than social media as your starting point. Well, this is a whole new world. Like most things online, this is unregulated. What are the red flags with virtual influencers penetrating our virtual lives? Oh, look, I, I think virtual influencers, the, the challenge there is whether they are regulated as entities, like as, as people would be, or are they regulated as, say, software? Um, but either way, when they're interacting with people and those interactions feel real, those questions of disclosure of, you know, should uh, most influencers have to disclose if they're being paid to, to spruik a product, for example. Most virtual influencers are a product. So do they have to reveal that they're spruiking something when it's a third party? To what extent do we need to be transparent about the money that's changing hands, you know, behind closed doors? And to what extent do we need to value those relationships that are built between virtual influencers and their audiences? Even if we know to some extent that they're artificial entities, people have real senses of connection with these, these, these entities. Equally, do people have to disclose when they are virtual influencers? For a long time, the intrigue around some of the, the first generation of virtual influencers was nobody was quite sure if they were real or not. So is that something we have to disclose? If you're a bot, should you have to say that in your bio, for example? So there are some, some real transparency and um, and uh, commerce sort of uh, rules that just haven't formed yet around these sort of relatively new entities. And I think those are the the, the sort of rules that will need to fall into place pretty quickly as virtual influencers become more commonplace and indeed inhabit something like the metaverse. Meta says its specific areas of concern are representation and cultural appropriation. Tell us about Shudogram and therefore why this is fraught before we even get started. 
Yeah, so Shudu is a virtual influencer or virtual model who was created by a white British man called Cameron Wilson, who then created a uh, very dark-skinned, uh, I guess you would say, presenting as if sort of Nigerian um, virtual influencer. Um, he didn't disclose that to start with, and so Shudu sort of built up a following. And then, as it be sort of, you know, as as it was revealed that Shudu was essentially a a software artifact created by um, Cameron Wilson, he really didn't take very well the idea that there were some questions about, you know, a, a black um, virtual influencer being essentially controlled by a white man, and whether that was actually knocking out opportunities for for real um, models and and you know other people in these spaces. And I think that conversation really highlights, you know, questions of representation and appropriation need to be asked right now because otherwise um, representation might be what we've got. So some dark skin models on our catalog. Oh, but there's no actual, you know, when nobody's being paid, it's just software. And I think that's a, a really challenging and problematic direction that this, this could go. And it's good that those questions are being asked now. And what's the way forward with this? Where might we be in a decade's time when it comes to virtual influences? Oh, look, in a decade's time, we can, we can see that there will be the software will be so good that that if you don't tell us, we're going to spend a lot of time guessing whether we're interacting with a real person or a piece of technology. And I think before we get to that, we have to have some rules, some clear guidelines about disclosing that sort of information. Otherwise, it's going to get very confusing. In the same way that we've seen um, deep fakes, for example, used around the, the Ukraine war, um, I think that's the beginning. And disinformation is already ripe on the internet. The idea that we're going to see photorealistic speaking entities and we can't tell whether they're real or not, the only way that's not going to be an enormous problem is if we get the rules and the boundaries right today before the software gets as good as it will. So maybe our next interview will be done by a virtual influencer rather than myself. That's potential well, something that's in right. the future. How, how do I even know you're real? That's my <laughs> challenge today. Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. I'm Oriel Morrison. To stay across the important conversations shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.